Welcome back to Gotham Writers Inside Writing, everybody. This show is presented, as I said, by Gotham Writers, offering writing classes of all types and sizes. You can visit us online at gothamwriters.com. Before we get started, a few announcements. First of all, the Gotham Writers Conference is officially open for registration. If you want to peek behind the publishing curtain, this is the place to be. Doubly so if you have a book project you're ready to discuss with agents, uh, you can find more details on that on the Gotham Writers website as well. Regarding today, at any point in the show, you can use the uh, Q&A function to ask questions of our panelists. Most of you know the lay of the Zoom land, but it's down there on the dashboard. You'll see Q&A. If you hit that button, uh, you can pose your questions. The sooner you get those questions in, the quicker I will go to audience questions. So if you have a pressing question, make sure you get it in there soon. We also have the chat down there. Now, as a reminder, please keep your discussion in the chat and keep your questions for uh, questions for the panelists in the Q&A. Uh, lastly, if you want to get caught up on any episode of Inside Writing, you can find them all on the Gotham Writers YouTube channel or on any major podcasting platform. Just search for Inside Writing. And while you're there, like us, subscribe, leave a review. It helps to spread the word. Now, on to the subject of the day, which is freelancing. We're going to start with a quote from Eugene Ionesco, who said, a writer never has a vacation. For a writer, life consists of either writing or thinking about writing. We'll talk more about that later, but now let's meet our panelists. Our first panelist, writer of pieces appearing in such places as Rolling Stone, The Nation, Real Simple, and more, Melissa Petro. Hello, Melissa. Hi there. There she is. And our second panelist, a writer of pieces appearing in such places as Electric Literature, The Atlantic, Bellevue Literary Review, and more, Alana Schubach. Hello, Alana. Hello. Thank you both for being here today. So, Melissa, we're going to start with you just to get our, our usual definitions out of the way. Melissa, what does it mean to be a freelancer? What does that term mean? Um, I think different writers would have different definitions, probably. I, mean, I don't know, maybe. But uh, it's you're not employed by any one employer. You don't do a, a W-2. It's a 1099 or... Um, so you are, I think technically the term historically comes from knights who had, um, who would be on hire and work for whomever um, employs their, their lance that, that day or that week or that, that fight. Um, so actually that's kind of a cool analogy. So like when you've got a fight, you take it and you find someone who can, who will employ you to, to fight that fight. I like that. Alana, do you have anything to add? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's a pretty good definition. Um, you can you can write for basically wherever you want. So you can kind of like follow your interests and follow your enthusiasm. Um, so I think there's lots of advantages to that. You know, the downside is a certain lack of stability for sure. And there can be some uncertainty about like where your next gig is going to come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you both brought up points that I want to get back to later on. Um, but I want to start talking about submitting since you're not a freelancer, if you're not submitting the places. So, Alana, with so much of freelancing being about submitting, having stuff to submit, always sort of, it feels like it's constantly in motion. Do you have a methodology or a strategy when it comes to producing content, submitting content, and sort of just keeping that going with, with consistency? Yeah, definitely. Um, so usually when I have 
uh, an idea, I also have a few different like desired publications that I might write it for. Um, and so I kind of set them up like I rank them, you know, whatever my top choice is, that's where I'm going to pitch the idea first. And then that way, if I get a no, if the editor passes, I can just like move on to the next place. And so at any given time, I might have a few different pitches going to different publications. Mm-hmm. Melissa, what about you? What's your strategy to all of this? Absolutely. So I'll also have a letter of publications. And if I have an idea that I want to um, to sell, I'll start at the top of the ladder and then just work its way down. And, and then sometimes you'll see a call for pitches. So it'll happen the opposite way where you don't have this idea or a story that you want to sell. Instead, you have someone soliciting, uh, looking for writers, and asking for pitches. So they'll almost offer a prompt, like, you know, they really need stories on whatever subject from whatever point of view or, so then you think, oh, or you'll discover a publication like, um, oh, here's Curbed and they're doing personal essays now and like really cool people are writing them. Like what personal essay could I write for a real estate publication? So it, it kind of goes the other way. So then you think of ideas for that publication. Um, and it's really, for me, freelancing is really about marrying the perfect idea with the perfect publication. And it's like dating, like everyone's a little different. Every idea is unique, um, but there's a publication out there for everyone. And, and there's no right or wrong ideas or no good or bad ideas um, or good or bad publications. It's just finding that perfect um, union. And, and that's what you're trying to aim for every time. Mm-hmm. Fun. <laughs> So that segues into the next question I was going to ask you, Melissa, which is how, how do you find these places to submit to? It feels like there's so many. Yet how do you find the perfect one? You know, I always tell my students they have to be readers, but that's kind of not true. I'll be honest. Like, I don't have a ton of time to exhaustively read every publication I could potentially write for. Um, but you do have to be tapped in. So social media, following writers, seeing where they write, um, seeing which headlines are trending, um, getting a, a sense of, of people who are moving around. So being on Facebook, being on Twitter, um, go at study hall is a great resource a community. There's, um, there used to be who pays writers. I don't know if that's still updated, um, but every now and again, there'll be like this community. Cause I think something also missing from the freelance definition is like, it's a highly exploitative industry and people are really, on their own, um, but we're not when we work collectively. And I, I think people are, are, are doing that, if not more often, at, at least there's these opportunities on social media to really share resources. And, and one of those resources we really try to organize collectively and share is, you know, who, who, who to write for and who pays writers. Mm-hmm. Lana, what about you? Where, where do you look for places to submit? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Like, I hate to say it because Twitter can be so addictive and such a time suck, but it is a very useful resource. I see editors putting out calls for pitches on Twitter all the time. Um, And I've connected with editors that way through Twitter, you know, Um, study hall too. I also subscribe to that. And I think that's a really excellent resource. So once a week, they send out a newsletter with this huge call for pitches from just like tons of places. And they also have um, interviews with editors where editors talk in depth about what they're looking for. 
from a pitch. And so it's, it's incredibly helpful and it's a good way to familiarize yourself with some of the publications out there, because I agree, it's like impossible to keep up. There's, there's new, you know, magazines and online publications coming and going every single day. So, um, I mean, what, whatever you like to read, that's a great place to start, but it's also good to, you know, check out some of these newsletters and, and find some places that you might not have heard about. Yeah, study hall is a little inside baseball, but after some time, like, so it might be intimidating for, for newer writers, but mm. I always tell like newer writers, like it's, it's like a yoga class. They're the same moves. They're the same people. Like there's, there, you're, once you're, it might be intimidating at first, but once you get the flow, you'll see, you're just going to get better and better at that same flow. And, and you're as welcome at, in a, that community as I am. Like, it's not, um, do not be intimidated by, by freelancing. Once you've learned the steps, then you just spend the rest of your career perfecting it and we're never perfect. So. I think I, I really agree with that. I think that's true. Um, and I don't know how much this is still something people use, but I remember when I was first starting out, I used um, Media Bistro and mm-hmm. they had, they also have like um, how to pitch guides and I'm assuming it's still, I haven't looked in a while, but I'm assuming it's still up there. Um, but it would be like how to pitch food publications, how to pitch business, you know, whatever. And they'd have different places and the editors, the editors contact info, what they're looking for. So that was another really good one. And I think that might be like slightly more beginner oriented. There's also a site called PitchWiz that does calls for pitches and there's community, like there's a, a, the conversations happen at, on that site. And then there's a writer named Sonia Weiser who yeah. aggregates all the um, calls for pitches and sends out a newsletter. And a lot of writers have their own newsletters and sometimes we'll talk about like the industry and people are just really approachable. Uh, if you have a question, like I've reached out to Tim Herrera here. I think he actually also from New York times, the editor of the um, smarter living section, like he does, he, um, offers resources for freelancers. People really, um, it's not like people are helping each other because it, it, it doesn't cost you anything. And it's no, it's not competitive in that way. Like people are not sharp elbowed where there there's, it's not, it's no jeopardy to me to help another writer. In fact, it makes me look good. If I refer a new writer to an editor and that editor gets something that is helpful to them from that writer, then that just makes me look good. So like, please let me help you. <laughs> So with all these, Alana, we'll target this question. You with, with all these resources to find places, what makes a place really stand out? What makes you see this place and say, oh, this is somewhere I want to submit to? Well, I think, you know, if I go take a look at what they're publishing and the articles, you know, whatever I'm reading, the essays or articles or whatever it may be, are, you know, speak to me in some way. It's engaging with subject matter I find interesting. Um, the quality of the writing is really good. Maybe they're taking a different angle on on a story that I've never seen before. Um, So there's like a strong point of view. I think all of those kinds of things really appeal to me. Um, Also not to be too much like judging a book by its cover, but definitely the design of the publication, the look of it, you know, is it easy to read? Like these kind of things. That means it's going to draw in an audience too, right? And so that's that's appealing to me as well. I want to reach a lot of people. Melissa, what about you? You know, it's impossible to read all these different places. So what makes you say, this is the place I'm going to send to as opposed to this other place? Uh, I really only care what they pay. <laughs> <laughs> I, like like it has to, I have a, like a bread and butter. I write for Business Insider as much as I want 
as often as I want and they give me a really great rate. So it has to be a publication that if this publication has to match their rate, otherwise like I've dipped, like the nation actually pays shit, but they're pretty prestigious and they have a great readership and that's a really good clip. So I'll sometimes dip for things like that. Even the Rolling Stone as well. Like these are not well-paying publications, but they're super prestigious. So if you have that story that you really want to like make waves, then, you know, you might go, I might go to one of these more prestigious publications where they're going to have like a big readership. Um, and ironically, those oftentimes don't pay as well as um, like medium was great for pay. Like they pay a dollar a word and it's not, they were, you know, they had a, a shit ton of columns that, um, you know, we, we may or may not recognize today, but, um, they paid really well. So I wrote, I liked to write for them. Yeah. I think the idea of having like a bread and butter gig is, is really important. And I think it's something a lot of freelancers are like aspiring to get. Um, I, I have my kind of bread and butter is writing for a couple different real estate publications and those places like actually assign me stories. I don't have mm -hmm. to do pitching. Um, the pay rate is really good. And so that is something I'm relying on as a big chunk of my income. Right. And so then I agree, Melissa, you know, I do kind of the same thing. Then if I have other ideas that are more just important to me, um, maybe I'm not prioritizing pay rate as like the number one thing. And I'm, I'm looking for places that I, I find, you know, just to be like interesting publications. Yeah. And it's really, it's not as hard as we think to get a bread and butter. Like I've always had one, but usually at a very low rate. Like I think the first place I wrote for paid me $40 an article and I could just churn out as many as I could. Um, and it wasn't prestigious at all. Like no, you, no one's has heard of it. So um, you can work your way up from there, but it's a nice way of one, having that reliable paycheck and also um, just working your muscles as a writer and getting to explore the ideas that maybe it's too much work to pitch these ideas constantly, but um, this place will kind of publish anything you write. So yeah, yeah, it is a real luxury to have one and you can, you can start working your way up. I think I started with this like real niche addiction website and then it was like XO Jane and then it was like, you know, you just kind of move around. So yeah, we're getting that one place that's going to take your pitches. <laughs> so we're getting a, a bunch of questions already. So I just want to jump to one Q and a from the audience, Melissa, I'll let you start with this. Is there a bare minimum rate uh, that's standard for freelance writers and what kind of pay rate should you be looking at or looking for? There, I mean, there are a lot of places that do not pay and that people are really grateful to be published on. Um, there's a lot of prestigious places that do not pay um, and, and, and other rise. So I don't think it's fair to tell a writer what they should or shouldn't expect for their work. I think we all make those decisions based on our situations and that's, that's fair. I think every writer might have their own um, list of goals. And if one of your goals is to make money off your writing, then you have to decide what you're willing to write for or not. Um, there are, there is no industry standard and that's part of the, the, the nature that actually that a lot of writers push back against and that we're collectively pushing back against the idea that we can just be exploited for our content. Yeah. Um, Alana, anything to add to that? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some writers who are of the opinion that you should not write for free um, because it's bad for writers in general. Like the more people who write for free, the easier it is for publications to not pay. Um, I understand that point of view, but I also think, you know, for some people who are just starting out and need to get some clips in order to keep writing for more places and perhaps more prestigious places and better paying places, it might make sense to write for free or for a very low rate for certain publications. Um, when I first started freelancing, I was writing for the Village Voices food blog and I was getting 50 bucks a pop, you know. They also paid for my meals, which was really nice. That was a big perk for me. Um, but it helped me generate like a lot of clips and and get myself out there. And so for me, it was it was worthwhile and it wasn't the only thing I was doing. I couldn't have lived off it. So I was doing other things too. Um, but it, but it did really help me get something started. Yeah, I did, um, like 20 piece or 24 pieces for $200 for bitch magazine. Oh, I was like yeah. honored with a column and I look back and they actually like at one point they tweeted something disparaging about exo Jane. And I had to be like, well, exo Jane pays me like $500 an essay and mm -hmm. you paid me like, or yeah. however that works. So like, Let's not like a lot of the more prestigious places do not expect writer writers don't expect to be paid because they're not doing it for the money. And, yeah. you know, that can be a real challenge for writers who are doing it for the money. But a lot of us are doing it for the money and also other reasons. So it can be that complicated um, equation that you figure out every time you have an idea and or a publication you want to work for. Like, is this rate worth it? Up yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, in terms of like the range of pay, I would say it's anything from zero to, I mean, the highest that I ever heard anyone refer to was $4 a word, but that's like a top writer for the New York times. Um, and I think that's pretty unheard of. I think a dollar a word is considered quite good, which is crazy. Cause that's the same that writers were getting like 50 years ago. And there hasn't really been inflation in the, in the pay at all. Um, but, but I think that is considered pretty respectable. So I want to shift gears a bit and talk about building a rapport with editors um, and how important that is. So Alana, I'll start with you for this one. Is that something that writers should be trying to do like from the start? Or is that something you can only do once you start getting stories accepted? Or, or how do you start building a rapport with these people? And what's the benefit to it? I think, yeah, I think it's definitely something to aim for. And I think it can be incredibly beneficial, especially if you're if you're starting out, you can learn a ton from a good editor. Um, I mean, the way you build a rapport, you know, you, you pitch these editors, um, if they they might they might pass on it and say, but try me again, you know, and and if they tell you that they mean it right? They wouldn't say that if it wasn't, if it wasn't genuine, because they are so inundated with pitches, they're not going to ask for something from a writer, they're not interested in it. So, you know, definitely, if that happens, try them again. And if they accept one of your stories, you know, keep in touch, in touch with them, pitch them more ideas. And I think gradually, that's the way you um, build a relationship. Um, so, so for me, I had an experience where um, I wrote a, a story for this real estate publication and it was actually something a friend had referred me to. And, you know, the editor said, pitch me again anytime if you, if you have something. And so I wasn't a real estate writer, but I needed to make a living and, you know, I wanted to get myself out there. So I started brainstorming more real estate ideas and I ended up writing more and more for this uh, editor. And then eventually I was, I was hired for this website as, um, 
a contributing editor after a while. And I worked there for a couple of years. So it's, and I learned a tremendous amount from this editor who was very seasoned herself. So, um, I mean, I think it's incredibly valuable. Yeah. Melissa, what about you? Um, yeah, I think these relationships are really important. It's, it's a fine line be, between like, uh, like letting it happen organically and working for it. Like you don't want to try too hard <laughs> to make a, a friendship with an editor. That's weird. Um, but it's not weird at all because you actually do develop um, relationships with your editors as you continue to write for them. I think from the start, the, the ideal writer is cheerful and professional and follows through. You're punctual, turning in your work on time. I am really shitty at that now. My editors, my, if they heard that, they'd be, they know that's not, it's not always possible, but especially in the beginning, it's pretty important. And turning in just clean copy that they expect. So the essay that they assigned um, and really just being diligent and um, being easy to work with. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I think for a lot of writers, the hardest part of of submitting, at least, is is hitting submit and and letting it go and sending it out there into the world. Melissa, how do you overcome that? Do you still struggle with that? Does it ever get easier? Depending, sometimes if it's a if it's a publication that I feel um, if the stakes feel high, um, but it's a little like anything else. It's what's called exposure therapy when you're. <laughs> have a phobia you just have to keep exposing yourself to that that fear so you just um you hit send and then you move on to the next idea it helps in my for my lifestyle I only get like three hours a day today to work so I don't have time to to over analyze the pitch or to dwell too much on the exchanges with editors um I, you you just have to do it and move on I had um you know I always say like just just get their name right in the, in the sub, like get the, like don't miss misspell their name. And I've had two male students, um, not in my lifetime, but like that I can think of now who both misspelled the editor's name and got the assignment. Like one was, I think Rolling Stone and the other was, uh, you know, big top tier publications and they misspelled the editor's name and they still got the assignment. So like, it, it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to, um, even to pitch something that is just really uh, like not the right pitch for that publication to make mistakes. Um, editors are forgiving. Um, I've had students make terrible mistakes and, and, and the editors forgive and they'll continue to work with you. If you're, um, if you're learning, if you're still learning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're only human. Right. And, but, but I think for me, you know, what, what has helped me overcome, the nervousness around submitting is just like informing myself as much as I can about this publication and this editor, you know, certainly making sure I've got their email right, I've got their name right, but also looking to see, has this publication recently run something that's like similar to what I'm pitching, right? Or uh, do I have something new to say? Um, is it is it in line with the kind of content they publish, right? Like, so, so doing that kind of research ahead of time and also doing a little research on the idea that I want to pitch, like a little bit of pre-reporting maybe um, and making sure that my idea is really like cohesive, you know, and that my pitch is really, you know, kind of punchy and attention grabbing. Um, so I think all of that helps me feel more confident when I do send one out. And then also you have to remember like, again, editors get so many pitches, how much time are they really spending reading yours? Like maybe, like maybe 20 seconds or something. So, um, you know, you don't need to be 
quite so precious about it. It's um, it's probably not going to get this level of scrutiny that you might be afraid of, you know. Um, so yeah, so if there's little imperfections, it's okay. Yeah, I always tell my students, your name isn't written on some walls. Like you've not been blacklisted because you've made that mistake. But you do make a really good point about, I'd said earlier that we don't have time necessarily to read every publication all the time, but definitely before you hit send, look at that publication, make sure that your idea isn't on their front page. Like these are cringeworthy mistakes and and they're gonna waste the time of an editor and, and make an editor grumpy. So, so do give that publication a look and do everything Alana just said is just perfect because you really do want to make sure that pitch is, um, is not going to waste that editor's time. And, and Alana, what do you do when you're waiting to hear back? How long does it normally take? Like, I imagine there's a, a wide range of time it could take, but what are you doing in the meantime? Um, so I will only pitch a story, an idea to one place at a time, because, you know, God forbid you have two editors who both say, yeah, I want this. And then one of them, you're going to have to go, oh, just kidding. I'm not going to write this for you. And then I think you do burn that bridge with that editor. You know, that's, that's seen as pretty bad form. Um, it's, it's a different situation if you are submitting short fiction or creative nonfiction to literary journals, because they take so long to respond. Um, you can generally submit to a few different places at once. But, but for freelance journalism, um, I'll send to one editor at a time. If I don't hear back from them in a week, I'll follow up. And then if I don't hear from them, I'm going to take it as a no and start pitching somewhere else. Um, so I think like in terms of just dealing with that waiting period, you know, that's when it might be helpful to have a few pitches out there to a few different places at a time. Um, yeah. Melissa, is it similar for you? Yeah, I'll just work on something else. So I either have an essay that's already been assigned to me that I'm writing or I'm pitching other ideas or I'm working on I'm working on my book, you know, I'm, I've got something to distract me so that I'm almost surprised when the editor does email me back because I've totally put it out of my mind. So what, what happens, Melissa, if you write a piece specifically for a place and they don't want it? Do you, do you repurpose it for somewhere else or is that just not like a good they idea? Kill it? Or they just say no. Like, like if you wrote this piece specifically oh. with the publication in mind and they don't want it, what do you do with it? So I think you're, so there's two things you're talking about. You can write a piece on spec with that publication in mind. And sometimes I generally won't write on spec at this point in my career. I think um, when we're, we're newer writers, we're willing more to take risks and write a piece and then they can choose to take it or not. That's called writing on spec. Um, I still write on spec for New York Times and they've like rejected me at least a dozen times and it's demoralizing each time. So when that happens, well, I give it to my bread and butter and <laughs> maybe a little reformatted. It, um, so if you have these sort of like lower ladder publications that'll publish your work, um, then that's kind of uh, opportunistic because you can you can write something on spec and then if it doesn't sell to that publication you can kind of give it to someone lower down um, or you continue pitching it sometimes I'm so demoralized I just can't it I'll be honest <laughs> yeah I've I've written for the New York Times on spec and gotten a no um, that that would probably be 
like a publication like that at this point would be the only place I write for on spec. Um, and, and when that did happen to me, I ended up getting it in the Washington post. So I was like, okay, <laughs> close enough, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think writers starting out might be more comfortable writing on spec, but yeah, you have to just be aware that there is that risk that they'll say, no, thank you. Um, and so hopefully you have a few other places lined up that would also be a good home for that piece. Um, and, and then there are some times where you will have a pitch accepted or you'll get an assignment and you'll write it and it'll get killed by the publication. Um, it'll end up just like not being a good fit or whatever. And in, in which case they should pay you a kill fee, right? Like a, like a portion at least of what they were going to pay you. And then you can, you can take it somewhere else. So I'm going to cut to audience questions in a second, but I did want to ask about time management since, you know, we all have lives in addition to our writing. Uh, Alana, let's start with you. How do you balance life responsibilities with writing to make sure that you're consistently producing content? How, how do you hold yourself accountable? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, the need to earn money to live is a good, <laughs> is a good way to hold myself accountable for sure. Um, when I was first starting out, I was definitely working ridiculous amounts, um, especially because when I, when I started freelancing, I was also working a full-time job at, at which I was very unhappy. And uh, I started moonlighting as a freelancer and eventually got to the point where I had enough going on there that I could quit my office job and freelance full-time. Um, but that was, that took working absurd hours that I wouldn't really recommend anyone do. Um, at this point, I, I try to basically work like a normal day, you know, a nine to five kind of schedule. And I'm protective of my evening times of my weekends. If I get professional related emails at that time, I usually just like won't respond to them. Um, because I think that is the risk of being a freelancer is that you can sort of always be on call. Um, you don't have one boss, but you have instead multiple editors reaching out to you um, or sources if you're doing interviews or whatever. So you have to find a way to like guard your leisure time. I think that's extremely important and should be a priority. Um, as far as like during the day, how do I manage it? I, I have just like some basic stuff, just like to do lists. And, um, you know, I, I have my planner and I just try to have like a visual of everything that I need to do that I'm like constantly referring to and updating. And I find having that helps me. Um, yeah. Melissa, what about you? How do you, how do you manage your time? So I actually just wrote about this for Business Insider. Um, so I can, so I've thought about it. Um, when, before I was a mom, I had like all the time in the world and I was actually always on call and, and setting boundaries like that um, was definitely important because I was always working. A news peg would happen and I could respond to it right away and I could work until like 10 o'clock at night on that piece that needed to run the next day. It was a very exciting way of working, but my life is so different now. I really only get like three, four hours without the kids. So um, the piece I wrote, um, talks about maker versus manager time, which is a, a principle of time organization that you can Google. And it, it, it's the, the person who created it, I forget his name. Um, he's a computer scientist, but he, his, the premise is that people who are creatives need like, not like an hour, but like three hours. Mm. They actually really get into the, the process of writing. And I find this to be true for me. So there are days when I have three hours and I literally block them out in purple on my Google calendar. 
And then the rest of my life is not three hours. And, and sometimes even during my like child free time, like I don't get three hours because like I got to open the door for the dishwasher repair guy or like I have a student for 45 minutes or like there's these things that kind of disrupt my maker time. So those days are manager days, like manager time. So I basically schedule all my like administrative work, including pitching and responding to editors and anything that's not creative, but aspects of freelancing ends up on my manager time. So that a couple days a week, I have maker time, which is like three to four uninterrupted hours. Um, and then when I'm with the kids, I'll do manager time type activities. Sometimes I'll get to respond to an email or like, you know, maybe re like look at a read back or like do something that doesn't really require too much creative concentration. But I know it to be true before I had kids. And it's still true now that if I really do want to create, I need at least four solid hours of uninterrupted time. So I make that happen. So I want to make sure we're getting a ton of audience questions. So I want to make sure I leave some time for it. So I'm going to get into them real quick. And if there's more time, we'll get back to this. But let's start with a question. Uh, Alana, we'll start with you for this one. What does your brainstorm process look like? I find idea generation is my biggest hurdle. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, let's see. I think... Uh, you know what? I, I have to have like a good sounding board for it. I, I find that when I get an idea and it's a little fuzzy, I need to like work it out with someone, you know? So I'll talk to my husband or I'll talk to one of my close friends and just like think it through out loud and have them ask me questions about it um, and, and kind of push me to develop the idea and become a little more clear on it. Um, and then also just like writing, I'm constantly like writing down notes and ideas as they pop into my head and then, um, you know, trying to explore them, you know, so certainly I want to see what else has been written about an idea that I have and think about how I'm going to find a different angle on it. Right. Because that's really important. There's, there's a lot of subjects out there that I might have an opinion on, but that have been really worked over already. And I'm not really bringing anything new to bear on it. You know, so finding some kind of fresh way of approaching it, I think, is really important. And so that might take, again, like conversations with people, a lot of research, um, maybe even like in, sometimes you want to interview someone, right? Like interview an expert and and see what they have to say. Um, and in that case, you can just let them know, look, I'm a freelance writer. I'm not sure where this is going to end up yet. But generally, people in those situations are, are more than happy to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Melissa, what about you? What's your brainstorming process like? usually it's, it comes from a conversation I've had in real life or online. And that's where I do that, have that hashing out of an idea or exploring, um, you know, crowdsourcing reactions or, or I'll, I'll see something in, in like a mom group on Facebook. You, you, it's like entering a party. You, you, you walk in the room and you hear what everyone else is talking about and you see which conversation is most interesting to you and, and importantly like what do you have to say about that subject that other people aren't saying and and that's the story idea that I'll usually um start to um cultivate mm -hmm. next question uh Melissa, we'll start with you on this one. If you're just getting started, should you narrow potential pitches to subjects you know about? Does that matter? That's a good question. Um, I know some writers are can 
be sort of precious about their their brand and what they write and what they were not going to write. Um, I wasn't that way. I wanted just tons and tons of bylines. Um, so I would write about anything. Um, but really, when you say you're going to write about anything, you end up writing about those things that you um, that you're an expert on. Those are the pitches. Like I would even pitch like I remember years and years ago, like, you know, someone would die or like overdose and everyone would uh, Amy Winehouse and everyone wants to write about Amy Winehouse. Well, what do I have to say that's that's not already being said on this topic. You know, I, I was sober, but so is like so many other people. Like there's nothing, um, I, why am I the expert? Why, do, why am I the right person to write this piece? That's really something you do have to prove in your pitch. You have to show yourself to be the right person to write that, that article. And it, it's not necessarily because you have the degree or the, even the professional experience. Um, you know, it could be that you have the enthusiasm or that you have the idea um, and you feel that urgency to, to, to explore it. Um, that just has to somehow be proven in the piece. Um, so I would encourage people to look for those, those ideas that, that you feel um, some like real um, seriousness of purpose behind it. And, and, and you can really prove in that pitch to the ex, the, uh, the editor that you're the right person to write that, that essay or article. Yeah. I think, I think like if you're going into journalism, you have this, this choice where do you want to be more of a generalist and know a little bit about a lot of things? Um, or do you want to have a beat where you really cultivate a very specialized knowledge about a certain topic? But I think either way, you don't have to begin as an expert. You know, when I first started writing about food, I mean, at the time I barely even cooked. Um, I just liked going out and eating food. And I, I lived in Queens and I ended up writing a column about food in Queens. Um, and so, you know, I, I like got out there and, and researched and ate at a lot of places and talked to chefs and other people who worked in food. And then sometimes I'd be like frantically writing down terms they said that I didn't understand to like look up later. Um, so I, I suppose there was an element of faking it. But yeah, I mean, we, you have the Internet at your disposal. You can inform yourself on, on pretty much anything you want. And then the more you do it, the more you do find that you're developing quite a bit of, of knowledge about it. Next question, Alana, we'll start with you. How much research do you expect to do uh, for your pieces? And is there like a limit to, to how much you'll have to do for the rates that you're going to make? Um, hmm. Yeah. It's, so I think, I think that kind of relates to what I was just saying. I think like when you're first starting out, you're probably going to have more work to do on the front end. Um, when I first started writing about real estate, kind of same deal. I didn't know much about real estate. I honestly didn't know the difference between a co-op and a condo. And I was writing for a real estate publication. So there was a lot of, of research time that was going into it. And then eventually I got to the point where it, it came a lot easier. And I was, I was familiar with this stuff. Um, so, I mean, the thing is, is like, if you're not, if you don't have a hard deadline, you could research forever. I think at a certain point you have to like cut yourself off. It's, it's probably a confidence issue, right? Like feeling like, how do, you, how do you get to that point where you feel like, okay, I know enough to write this? Um, you might never really feel that way, right? You might never, I, I, I find that's the case with almost any time I start something new, I don't feel ready, but you have to just do it, right? Um, so 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's a very personal decision, but it is helpful to just have a deadline, even if it's one you're giving yourself, so that there is an end to the research and you have to actually sit down and start writing it. Melissa, what about you? How do you handle research? Um, I don't do heavily reported pieces because of the rates. And I don't think, I didn't really ever do heavily reported. I'm more an essayist. So I really lean into... Um, you know, first person essays um, and, and, and subjects where I just have a, 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 an intrinsic passion towards, towards our, our learning more or, or, or an innate knowledge already on that subject. So I'm not going to be doing a lot of research, um, not for the rates that are being offered freelancers. Gotcha. Uh, next question, Melissa, let's start with you. How many pitches do you send out in a week and how many assignments do you have like a max that you'll do? Do you have like barriers for yourself? I think when I was full-time freelancing, so not right now when I've got like full-time momming, but full-time freelancing, I'd have about three or four ideas and in various stages, either from like a pitch to like near publication or it's with the editor. Um, so I always had those three or four um um, projects in the various stages. And, and then you can pitch one idea, maybe mul you can multiply submit that idea to um, simultaneously submit a pitch idea. So it, so it would be, I had a lot in the air. Mm -hmm. And that, that kept me really energized and, and constantly working when I had a full time, when I was full time freelancing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think three or four is a good number if you're doing it full time. Um, Nowadays, I, I don't really, I, I have the luxury of having enough assignments that I don't really need to be pitching. And so I will only pitch when I have an idea that I feel passionate about or I feel strongly about, I have a lot of interest in. Um, but, but certainly when I was starting out, I think, I think three or four sounds like a pretty good amount. Yeah. Next question, Alana, we'll start with you. Do you ever negotiate the rate of a piece or is that just wishful thinking? Oh yeah, no, I definitely negotiate. You should, you should negotiate. Um, the worst that can happen is that they say no, um, but they're not going to, they're not going to decide like not to work with you because you asked for more money. Um, and I have found that often when I ask for more, I, I get more. They're not, they're not like coming to you with their best offer. Right. Um, especially, and, and especially once you have more experience under your belt, I think, you, sh you should, you should ask for more. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's worth a shot. It can feel, people feel very uncomfortable talking about money. And I think employers use that to their advantage to like underpay you. Melissa, what about you? Do you negotiate? I absolutely agree. So I always ask for more, or I did when I was full-time freelancing. Now I don't have to negotiate, uh, now it's like almost freelancing is almost more of a pet project. But when I was a serious professional, I would always ask for a better rate. Um, can you do, you know, they offer you this, you say, well, can you do this? Maybe $50, $100 more, or my usual rate for this project is X. Can you come closer to that? Um, you know, if they, and they, they will. The last time I negotiated a rate, um, they went from 150 to 400. Um, and it still wasn't close enough to my rate. So I didn't take the assignment, but back when I, before I would have, that would have been a real success. And that's absolutely what can happen um, 
when you negotiate. Though I will disagree with Alana. I have had editors um, kill the assignment because of really? negotiating. Shockingly, it's happened to me twice, and it happened recently where someone said, I forget how it was worded, but um, when I asked for more the way I just described, this is my usual rate, can you come closer to that? They said, we, we can't, so you don't want to work with us. Wow. Um, assuming I didn't want to work with them, which wasn't necessarily true because I had already written the piece, so I might have just given it to them, but um, uh, I, that's probably not an editor I want to work with. If they right. don't respond positively to um, a professional negotiation, which we should all be doing, then um, I can't imagine that being a comfortable um, editorial experience. So, yeah, that would be my takeaway if that happened. Like, okay, I don't, I don't want to work with this place. Like, they're not open to, com- you know, communicating about this like very basic thing. You know, yeah. um, and like you said, they're not starting with their best rate. They're starting with their like their lowest rate. Um, and, and, and I would expect, they expect to be like nudged. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then something else I would say is I've also occasionally asked for more money, like in the midst of writing a piece, if it ends up being more involved than I thought, right. If there's, if there's more interviews, there's more reporting required, or, you know, the editor comes back and they want me to take it in a a direction that we hadn't spoken about or add something that we hadn't discussed initially. I'll I'll say, you know, yeah, I'm willing to do that, but I'm going to need, need more money for my time. Mm -hmm. Next question. Uh, Melissa, let's start with you on this one. How do you break into freelancing with no experience or previous publications? You write that one piece that only you can write. You were put here to tell that story or to to argue that point that everyone needs to hear. Um, then the writers are really, or the editors are really going to clamor for your um, pitch. They're going to they're going to know that they're going to have to work with you as a newer writer, um, but they're going to be willing to put in those hours because your story is just so valuable to them. I've told my story 102 times, but you, a new writer who has never been published, have something that that is worth so much. That, that the, the worth of that matches my experience as a writer. So they're really going to be willing to work with you if you pitch that idea, um, that great idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, if it's not a personal piece you're writing, if it's a reported piece, I think just, you know, find a way in your pitch letter to express like a same, same thing, why you're the person to write this. Like, do you have some expertise on this subject? Like, are you writing about a field you've worked in in the past, right? Or have some connection to, and I think that can take the place of um, clips, right? Of, of showing the editor other pieces you've written if, if this is going to be your first publication. Yeah, by no means does it need to be a confessional essay, you know, that first piece. You don't have to express your deepest, darkest secrets, um, but you do have to have a real um, an urgency behind the, the piece and, and, and an expertise, if not a personal experience, but some expertise that really, um, just demonstrates to the editor that you are knowledgeable and prepared to make the arguments that the piece is, is promising in the pitch. Next question, Alana, we'll start with you on this one. Is there a good source to get an idea of how a pitch should look and how it varies between different kinds of publications? So just speak to 
what a pitch should look like and how people can find examples of that? Yeah, there are editors who have, um, who have like pitch guides that are out there where you, and they will show you like what a sample, a good sample pitch looks like. And they'll, they'll share like past pitches that have been successful. Um, I'm trying to think of particular editors. I know there's this editor, Jessica Reed, who had something like that. Um, very, very in depth, but, but there's a number of them who will have that. Um, Melissa mentioned Tim Herrera before, and he has, he's a New York times um, editor. I believe he has pretty thorough pitch guides and has done like zoom talks about pitching. But I think a good rule of thumb is that the pitch should be like pretty tight. It shouldn't be too long. Um, generally like my pitches will look like, you know, I'll have, little introduction to the editor. If there's some connection there, I'm going to mention that, of course. Um, My pitch will be like maybe maybe a couple paragraphs, probably not much longer than that Um, because you, like I think a good pitch doesn't need, like it shouldn't need to be extremely long, right? You should be able to like summarize your idea in a pretty potent, punchy way that will grab the editor's attention. Um, And so you know, I'll have my pitch and then my final little paragraph of the email will just be a bit about me and I'll link to maybe three clips of mine. Um, So it's usually no more than a four paragraph long thing. And even that might be a little bit long. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I think I keep harping on this, but editors generally have tons of pitches coming into their inboxes every day. And so you want to get your idea across without taking up too much of their time. Um, you know, if they're confronted with like a wall of text, they might not even bother. Mm-hmm. Okay, I always tell my students, how do you feel when you open an email and it's just one long email, yeah. like you printed it, it was like multiple pages. Like no one wants to get an email that looks right. like that. You want it to be clear and concise, economic. And I also have about a three or four paragraph format where it's just the lead you know, why now, why are you contacting this editor? You know, did you get your, you know, did you have an idea in the shower this morning? Was there something on the news? You know, is there a news peg? Is there, um, you know, what, what is that feeling of like, I had to email this idea to you today. Maybe it's the lead of the essay um, that that really grabs the editor's attention, followed by a concise paragraph that um, just really succinctly describes what you're offering. I'm proposing a personal essay, a service piece, a reported piece framed by my, you know, that describes what you're selling. Um, the argument, if there's a plot, a be- the beginning, middle and end of the essay, um, ultimately what you learned as a result of your experience, if we're talking a personal essay, the situation and the story to use Vivian Gornick's language, you know, just one paragraph, three to four, sentences that does all that work and then why you why are you what's your bio why are you the right person to write that piece um, I always tell students you know if it's a piece about how pit bulls helped you get over your divorce raising mm-hmm. pit bulls then talk about your dog but otherwise don't mention your dog um, you know if the piece is about kids you can talk about your kids but it's uh, you know your experience as a writer and your experience on the subject matter of the piece that you're pitching and that's it. Next question. I think we got time for two more. Melissa, we'll start with you on this one. Is it okay to share blog posts as your sample writing or should you only share clips from publications? 
That's a good question. So editors want to see that you've worked with an editor. It's almost less about your talent as a writer as it is your professionalism as a professional freelance writer. So blog posts will demonstrate your writing skills just as the pitch letter does, but it doesn't necessarily show that editor that you know how to receive um, feedback and, and revise your work, that you can conform to a house style, um, all these like skills that, um, that we pick up as freelancers. Um, if you have no clips, I always encourage students rather than like, don't pad your, your bio, um, you know, don't mention that you wrote for the school newspaper or that you published this poem in this journal that never, mm. that, you know, just don't just say you're a freelance writer living in New York the end or wherever you live don't um don't <laughs> you can include your blog but um they're less interested in that and to, as, as they are really seeing that you that you've begun and ended a project with an editor is my my thoughts on that yeah I agree I think that covers it um and I think if you are a first-time writer that might be a situation where the editor asks you to write it on spec um, because they don't, they don't have any like evidence of your skill and they don't know what you're going to be like working with an editor. And so that, you know, when it's your very first piece, that might be a time where you agree to do that. And then, you know, hopefully the editor likes what you have to say and wants to work with you on it. And then you have a clip, right? Mm -hmm. Next question, Alana, we're going to start with you. How, or I'm sorry, can you talk more about writers being solicited? Where can you find houses, businesses, publications that do that? So I guess that means like calls, calls for pitches. Um, yeah. yeah. So we mentioned, we mentioned study hall. That's a really good one. Um, even, I mean, it's, it, it is like, you will find people who are, I think more seasoned writers on there. So it may be a little bit intimidating. I would also look on Twitter and like start following editors on Twitter. You know, I mean, I would just start with like publications that you enjoy reading, look at their masthead, find who the editors are, look them up and, you know, see, see what they're saying and what they're asking for. Cause a lot of them will be on, if not all of them will be on Twitter and they will post, um, you know, Hey, I'm seeking pitches on X, right. Uh, you can contact me here. So I think that is a really good place to start. I think just starting with a publication that you already have some level of familiarity and comfort with, and then seeing what their editors are asking for. That writer might also be talking about the experience of an editor reaching out to us into our inbox and asking oh. us the writing. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, that rarely happens to yeah. me. I see other writers on Facebook being like, oh, Vanity Fair asked me to write about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> <That's funny." laughs> Vanity Fair does not ask me to write about blah, blah, blah. Like very yeah. few editors reach into my inbox and give me an idea and ask me to write about it. Sometimes. It does happen when you get known to, to be that writer who writes about that subject. They will sometimes come into your inbox and ask you for yeah. a piece. Um, but that's like very like special when that happens. Yeah, I think that's like pretty high profile writers who are getting that. Um, I, I can't say I've really, I mean, I get assignments from the places that I work for, but it's, it's just like, okay, here's a real estate story that we want you to cover. It's not like we want you, Alana, we want your take on this, you know? Um, the one time I, something like that happened, 
I, I had written, um, I'd gotten a short story actually published with electric literature. And so the editor and I followed each other. And then I was on Twitter complaining about something in pop culture that was going on. And she replied to me on Twitter and was like, Hey, why don't you write about that for us? And so I did. And that was really exciting and cool. So I guess like ranting on Twitter can be useful sometimes. (laughs) Um, although not most of the time. So I want to sneak one more question in here because it just came in. Uh, Alana, we'll start with you. Do, do writers need a blog or a website? Should they have that online platform? Um, I, I, I think it, I mean, I guess it helps. What, I think maybe once you're like, once you've been working and you have some stuff to show. Um, when you're just starting out, I don't think you need to have a personal website. Um, you know, and as Melissa pointed out, having a blog should only do it if you really want to. Um, I don't think it is the way to grab an editor's attention, you know, like, cause I think that point that they want to see that you've worked with an editor is, is really well taken. Um, but, but once you, once you started writing for a few places and you have, you know, clips under your belt, um, then I think it is useful to like gather them all in one place on a website that you can refer people to if they're curious. Um, I'm, I've made up business cards for myself as a freelancer that have my personal website on them that I can, I mean, I don't know that I've ever gotten anything off my business card, but, um, but I do think, yeah, once, once you've got a lot of work out there, you want to maybe gather into one place. Mm-hmm. Melissa, anything to add to that? Probably, but now I just feel guilty. I don't have one. Like, <laughs> I don't really think I have an audience. Like I don't have the audience, the places I write for have. So I just write for them and not my website. So before we go, I want to give you both a chance to, uh, if you have anything coming out to promote it or to just tell people where they can find you on social media. Uh, Melissa, starting with you, do you have anything to promote or where can people find you? Find me on Twitter. Here's what you got to do. Go to Twitter, follow me, but then look at the people I follow because those are all writers and editors that I think you should follow and follow all the people I follow. And now you've got like, and do the same for Alana. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I'm just at Alana Schubach on Twitter. Um, yeah, nothing. I, I have a short story coming out this summer in the Sawani Review that I'm very excited about. Um, but I think that might be print only, so you won't be able to read it online. Um, but yeah, follow me on Twitter. Awesome. So everybody, thank you all so much for being here. Melissa and Alana, thank you so much. To all of our listeners, we're going to be back next week. I always forget what next, what the next episode. I think oh, it's inside rejection. We're gonna be talking about getting rejected and overcoming that. So again, Melissa, Alana, thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you. And we'll Thanks. see y'all next week.